0: Welcome to episode 20 of the Bucket C podcast. In this episode, I have a fascinating conversation with insurance expert Jeff Charles about the current and future states of autonomous driving. In particular, we talk about it through the lens of the insurance industry and through Jeff's unique decade plus experience in thinking about the future state of an industry. We get deep and evaluate a ton of potential scenarios that we might see in the future of autonomous driving. The conversation ranges from manufacturer liability for collision to where morality comes into play for an occupant or owner of an autonomous vehicle. It's a quick correction to note in terms of our reference to car ownership. We realize that it's not GM and it is Daimler. As a bonus around the 40 minute mark, Jeff gives us some tips on insuring our cars in a number of varying states. It's valuable info, so stick around for it. Anyways, this episode is such a nice change uh, in terms of pace for the show. And as usual, I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I'm your host, Trevor Byrne, and this is the Bucket Seat Podcast. Welcome back to The Bucket Seat. Uh, this is episode 20, and I, I'm very pleased to be able to have a good and long-term friend of mine, Jeff Charles, here with us tonight. Uh, very smart man, uh, very interesting topic for us tonight. I think something that a lot of the listeners and uh, you know myself included have been very interested in, in the past, which is both insurance and automotive, but we're gonna talk a bit about autonomous vehicles, autonomous driving, how the insurance industry is gonna deal with that. And then a couple of uh, nice little tips and uh, and tricks a little later on when it comes to some of the vehicles that we may all drive on a regular basis. So Jeff, thank you so much for being here tonight and uh, welcome to the show. Thanks Trev, great to be here. <laughs> um, so Jeff is a managing partner at Jones Brown Insurance. Um, Jones Brown and Jeff are both well versed in the automotive world, and so they not only look after both personal automotive insurance um, for a lot of their clients, but you know in the past I believe Jones Brown also insured a pretty important set of racetracks or a couple of racetracks here in Canada as well. Yeah, we
1: uh, we did. We have a, a history. We've since sold that business, but we uh, we have um, a history and familiarity in working in automotive nice okay so i think it was uh what
0: was it was it uh most sport was your big one that was uh yeah that was a group that we used to work with one of many yeah not a um not a place that uh, is foreign to crashes and probably some interesting insurance there as well yeah <laughs> <laughs> so um so what else in terms of the uh, world of auto insurance do you guys cover um, sure because i think there's there's i mean a pretty wide range of what you guys cover
1: yeah i mean it it um it depends, uh, province to province in Canada. But generally speaking, we we run a a pretty uh, fun and interesting book of private client business, so where we handle um, a number of uh, executives and affluent Canadian uh, portfolios of personal insurance. And with that comes cars, uh, mm-hmm. we've seen you know a variety of different uh, high end vehicles that are included in that portfolio. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we also have a relatively large uh, book of business in you know everyday retail. Uh, consumer insurance where, um, you know, we're working with uh, with families and young people and old people uh, with their automotive insurance needs. And then we do a lot of commercial insurance uh, where we would manage large fleets, leased fleets. Mm-hmm. Um, and that expands, you know, into trucking and into haulage and into larger fleets and commercial use or large heavy industrial commercial use of uh, of automotive. And, you know, with our work in the oil patch and some of the work that we do with, um, you know, shipping, exporting, um, we see a lot of goods going over the border and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of our clients are trying to sell stuff outside of Canada. So right. we support them in those efforts. Right.
0: And so I think that's kind of interesting because I think as we all start looking at the, uh, the world of autonomous driving, one of the places, um, from some of the sources that I've looked at as recent, um, you know, when you look at the commercial world, the fleet world, um, commercial haulage. It's kind of the, one of the, I guess, maybe not the easiest, but it is one of the, the prime candidates for autonomy. So if we were to look at something like, um, you know, I, I mean, I'm probably not using the right terms for it, but if you get into, uh, you know, we'll talk about just transport trucks like general haulage. If that were to be an industry that all of a sudden comes over into the autonomous world where we're not seeing you know sleepy drivers hauling on a regular basis probably pushing too many hours driving for too long and we stick in autonomous software so i say software obviously hardware all the things that control a vehicle i mean i've thought about it in the sense that if you were to take over you know the high occupancy vehicle lanes and you're putting in only autonomous vehicles, including haulage. You know, you're, uh, you know, traffic control. All those things are probably a lot easier to maintain. Uh, and I would imagine if it's the right type of software and the autonomy is correct, that it could possibly reduce a lot of the you know potential downfalls of having a human operator on a regular basis. So, I think that takes us interestingly enough into the world of autonomous driving. And I think we'll touch on both personal and you know commercial fleet and sure. kind of haulage, but. So as we get into this world of uh, autonomous driving, uh, like I said, commercial fleet, all of those things are interesting for me. Um, the most prevalent one right now, I think, in the in the press is obviously Tesla and them out kind of beta testing all of their autonomous driving and software. Do you have any experience with or do you um, do you guys cover a lot of the insurance for you know, people who drive Teslas and have this, you know, uh, um, you know, autopilot kind of program in, in their vehicles?
1: Yeah, I mean, the answer is yes, we insure Teslas. Um, today, I think because the human is still the main operator, notwithstanding the fact that there is an autopilot, you know, the insurance continues and still applies as it would to a, a regular pa- passenger vehicle and operator of a regular passenger vehicle. The interesting thing about autonomous driving from our perspective is really twofold. One, the liabilities that are associated with driving um are really the big concern so if there's no longer an operator who's liable exactly um that's one of the big questions that i think a lot of insurance companies are trying to uh to trying to solve and when you look at the other piece of of this it's who's going to own the car so the liabilities are there but um who do they fall to is it if it's not the driver because the driver no longer owns the car the big question is now where does the liability shift and then who ultimately owns that car. So does it shift to the manufacturer? So does Tesla and others like Tesla who are manufacturing these autonomous vehicles is the intention for them to continue to pick up the liability of the operation of that vehicle, or is it purely the manufacturing of that vehicle? So those are the questions that I think we're trying to dive into. And I think if you extrapolate from just the personal car to the fleet or to the, you know, to the hauling or trucking, um, the, you know, the question will remain who who owns those vehicles is the guy who needs to send lumber from the West Coast to the East Coast going to own his truck. Yeah. And is he going to employ drivers to drive that truck? Right. So until we get a sense of what that looks like, I think there's many question marks around there. Now, the models and the, you know, the hypotheticals are, yeah, if everybody's driving an autonomous car, then incidents should be reduced liabilities should be re, uh, should be re- reduced to the operator but it doesn't necessarily take away the liabilities that are still on the road if there is mechanical failure or if there is software failure somebody needs to be liable and the question i think is who is it the operator or the the manufacturer
0: yeah yeah well that's that's the thing is that you know you see um you know the, the internet is kind of riddled with all of these videos of these teslas braking and avoiding accidents in all of these kind of very uncommon um, situations where the vehicle you know predicted a crash or was able to stop long before anything had ever happened and i think that's obviously where you know someone like elon musk is looking at this and going there is no other way to do this uh you know there's our software and our the number of beta testers out there using our program and obviously tesla's case in particular is making a very strong argument for him to say, I'm making the automotive industry safer on a regular basis. Sure, there are crashes, and there's a couple that have been documented that uh, a driver did die. Um, you know, the, the system, I don't know if it's been proven that it malfunctioned or it didn't read what was happening on the road properly. But, uh, you know, when you look at it as an aggregate, the majority of his drivers and those people in those cars are safer on a on a, I guess, on a, on a grander scale. And but, so, But are they, if you're still interacting with, Operators of traditional passenger vehicles. So, it, I mean, the you know, unpredictability of a human versus, you know, a
1: piece of software. Well, and the, the interesting piece is what does the two combined look like? So, you know, just because we're building autonomous cars, I don't think necessarily suggests that we're eliminating all passenger vehicles that are human operated at the same time. Right. In one, you know, in one sort of bandit yeah, one of move, swoop. right? That's yeah, not it's gonna not going to happen like that. So, I think there's a really strong argument to counter, which is, you know, yes, your vehicle may be safer and yes your uh, system and software protects or does certain things that the human operator can't do but your liabilities aren't going away so one of the interesting questions i think for those manufacturers is as we go through these beta versions and you know my view of the tesla is that it is still in fact beta because Absolutely. we're not yeah. really mass producing these autonomous vehicles right i don't think that today these manufacturers are thinking about the liabilities I'm sure they're there and I'm sure they've got legal teams and there's other investors who are concerned about those liabilities, but really they're trying to innovate with technology and they're trying to change the way we we manufacture vehicles. The liabilities will likely become a second piece. And the question that I think that's really interesting is if they do believe they're making it safer, and that is the argument that they're making to the insurance companies, um, are they then willing to take on those liabilities? And then what is the aggregate of everybody that owns your car? From a liability perspective, look like that becomes a pretty interesting conversation to have because, you know, if you were to have repeated, frequent issues, and you're on the hook for those liabilities, I don't think there's a single organization that would be able to stomach class actions or you know right. significant lawsuits related to liabilities and that. So I think, you know, once once we get a little closer to alpha as opposed to beta or a live product. Mm-hmm. Um, those, those conversations will certainly heat up. And I can tell you today, the insurance companies are, are really, I think, looking at the manufacturers to say, you know, you now have a heightened responsibility with respect to these liabilities. And we wanna understand what you're doing to ensure that they're protected, which could also, Trevor, be, dri- be driving some of the design elements, some of the thinking behind the algorithm, some of the thinking in um, what is it gonna be in the end product? Because they're, right. they may already, in fact, be starting to think about those things.
0: Yeah, I mean, so this is one of the this is one of the potential scenarios that, um, as you're talking about this, it's one that plays through and through in my mind, and I know it's kind of you know most people would probably debate this, but it comes down to one particular scenario. I know we talked about it earlier, but it's like, you know, the the software developed by the company. Let's just use Tesla for, sure. for you know example in this case because I think they're the most relevant. Is uh, i'm in full autopilot i know that it's not uh, by no means is it driverless at this point but um without the driver operating the vehicle the 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 car and the software has to make a decision between uh, x and y variable and x variable being a family there's four people on a sidewalk um and on the other side uh there is let's call it a you know a seven year old eight year old child i don't know why that child would be by themselves but let's just use it for an example sure. Uh, The car has to avoid a collision to keep the occupant and driver, who is their, let's call it their client, essentially, safe. And it needs to veer in one direction or the other. And it's, you know, in this scenario, they cannot avoid either of those obstacles. But to keep the driver safe, it's now up to the software to decide, is it the driver that will be in a collision and an impact with, you know, unknown consequences? Or does it veer to the left and hit a family of four? Or does it veer to the right and hit a small child? Right. And at that point, I mean, who's on the hook for that decision? And now is it, um, you know, in a, you know, in, a, in both a court case, but also um, from a liability standpoint, is it the company that's on the hook at that point? Or is it, is it the driver that's on the hook at that point in current standards today? Sure. So. The one thing that I,
1: in, in and not to be cheeky about it, but the question that I would ask to that is, what would you choose?
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're already a driver. You may be faced with that same situation. How do you process that decision? Absolutely. But I think before I would make a decision, I would then challenge back that um, it's not me making that decision at this point, though. If it were me making that decision, I would probably choose myself i would i would allow my car my vehicle to be in a collision versus choosing two of those other scenarios right so what would prevent the algorithm builder
1: from creating that scenario and allowing that to be the outcome agreed yeah um at the end of the day is the vehicle and again you're going to go back and and try and understand so why is the vehicle in that situation in the first place Mm -hmm. what's caused it did somebody Mm -hmm. else on the road caused the vehicle to be in peril and have to make that decision which would probably be likely from a court case yeah or from a court perspective you know i think figuring out an insurance something that we do often is figuring out the proximate cause so what what caused the incident to to form and Mm. take place interesting right so just because your house is on fire doesn't necessarily like what caused the fire so we try to go back to what's the proximate cause of this situation. So I think when thinking about those scenarios, it's what caused that situation to take place mm-hmm. is going to be something that I think is investigated to determine where the liabilities actually exist. Hmm. If it's pure malfunction in the vehicle, then today, even you know if you're a drive if you're in that same scenario and you're a driver, you you're in that situation because there's a malfunction in the vehicle. There's probably going to be recourse to that. Manufacturer or the component part manufacturer that may have caused that
0: particular situation, a la kind of Toyota and the unintended acceleration problem. Potentially, right? That's a scenario. So the and and there are now
1: things in place in that industry in this industry to address recall and you know correct those situations. (laughs) You know, is it simply a matter of updating bugs in software? And you know, does that whole recall? How do you address recall when it's a software issue or it's a software bug? And then You know, I don't necessarily want to get into the whole hackability (laughs) scenario that exists today. It's a reality. Yeah, it'll come. It exists on certain vehicles today. Like we know that there are vehicles out there that can be remote controlled, um, you know, and taken over. So that whole scenario plays into it. But if you go back to that, you know, how do you determine what the outcome is? I think bluntly, the answer is, you know, is the company going to going to put together a set of moral choices and then a set of liability choices and how do you measure against the two the insurance companies are going to have you know a compelling argument to limit the liability and the exposure to their business because under a contract they have to they have to fund that so they're going to have an interest in doing that but i'd also suggest to you that you know the insurance companies are also hoping that you write you make the right moral choice too of course or we'd like to believe that right yeah. so you know, it would be very interesting to talk to the manufacturers to get a sense of how are you addressing this situation? I know the insurers are going to want to know that. Mm-hmm. When you when this car is facing collision or when this car is facing peril,
0: how is it going to react? What's the mm-hmm. decision that it's going to make? Well, and- I mean, it's almost as if, and I know this would never happen, but uh, Elon, if you're listening, I mean, I know he listens. He's a good friend of mine. I talk to him all the time. Hey, man, uh, we want to do your insurance too. <laughs> yeah, he, um, I would... I would think that um, uh, a fairly odd solution, not a solution necessarily, as just a, as a potential uh, avenue to go would be choosing uh, choosing your moral compass when you buy your car. So it's almost as if you do an interview with the manufacturer when you buy the car. Uh, a set of tests that then, you know, basically is programmed into the car as a part of your own moral compass to allow then now the car to make decisions on your behalf as a result of the what, the choices that you would make on a regular basis. And my decisions in my Tesla might be different than your decisions in your Tesla. Sure. And I think like a layer to that is too culturally you know, what I view as morally correct
1: in Canada may not necessarily be viewed as morally correct somewhere else in the world. Yeah, so unfair. that yeah. decision-making algorithm could be implicated depending on where you are in the world. Right. Um, the other piece of that is looking at, you know, um, today, if you look at the telemetric systems that are being put into cars, there's a sense of moral hazard already being evaluated. So mm-hmm. the insurance companies are yes, looking for is. raw data to understand your driving habits and, 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 supposedly your driving habits speak a little bit about your moral hazard. Are you a hazard? And you see it in other forms of insurance. So someone that's claiming on their homeowner's policy regularly and operates their home in a way that is potentially dangerous or, or, you know, a potential hazard, Mm -hmm. we're looking to screen those things. So insurance companies are doing certain things today. They'll look at your credit as an example. There seems to be a correlation between high frequency of claims, high frequency of incident with lower credit scores. Period. Interesting. So one of the data pieces or data points that in, that insurance companies are looking at is to understand, well, what's the credit score look like? Um, whether that's correct, fair, or right, wrong or, or otherwise. It's a data set that they're looking at. So I think they to your point, the broad, the broadening of the evaluation and the underwriting is going to shift to um, you know, your intentions as a automotive owner. But then you could also be looking at Trevor manufacturer so if we really do go to full autonomous vehicles why do we need to own our cars so Mm -hmm. you know if i can if i could use an uber like system and it's driven by an autonomous car it can operate around the clock i don't necessarily need to own the vehicle and that kind of goes back to that commercial fleet like who's going to own the vehicle Mm -hmm. if the manufacturer is going to lease or rent or it's a per use kilometer base whatever the billing mechanism is You know, if if people aren't owning their cars, then maybe it falls to the manufacturers to ensure
0: the liabilities and pick up
1: those exposures.
0: We don't know yet. And, and, you know, I would I would think so. I think if we if if we as a a group of people are going to trust or entrust our lives and our um, I guess our, you know. Our bodies and our minds in these vehicles to a, a company which right now in, in a way you look at uber uber x in particular um we are doing that and you know we're not evaluating each of those drivers based on their moral compass or what they would choose or what they would do on a regular basis if somebody jumped in front of their car would they just plow through them and say that you know my occupant was my number one priority, so I didn't want to veer off the road and potentially go into that transport truck. So instead, I hit somebody, and I'm sitting in the back of the cargo. going, I just needed a ride from A to B, and now all of a sudden, this is the this is the position that I've been put in. If it were an autonomous car. You know, the the company, I would think, like you said, would be the ones that would pre-program in what those thresholds would happen to be.
1: For sure. And I think you'll see smart plaintiff lawyers that tend to drive, you know, the litigious nature in these scenarios will name everybody. And Mm -hmm. the idea of naming everybody will eventually find out where the where is the money. Mm. And from there. You know the process will roll so if you, you know if there's four party four parties uh, involved in a collision two of them are autonomous and you know those individuals are hey i'm not driving well the plaintiff lawyer for the injured party is gonna is gonna turn around and he's gonna sue everybody involved in that accident and eventually someone's gonna have to defend and and you know the the manufacturer of these vehicles whether they like it or not are gonna get drawn into this and that candidly may drive where the insurance rates fall what happens with the nature of this because you know if it was if it was you you would expect your lawyer to figure out hey I've been I've been um, I've been harmed Mm -hmm. Uh, I have damages I have a life to live that I can't live anymore or there are certain implications to because of this accident I'm going to sue everybody that was involved with that
0: and it would be up to the manufacturer to prove that they're not necessarily responsible interesting I never I never looked at it from that perspective that may be what ends up uh naming who's responsible in these scenarios first. I mean, it may have to happen that way. Sure. There's gonna be
1: an there's gonna be an event or an incident that will ultimately set precedent and that precedent will be utilized, you know, more and more or challenged, depending on the nature of the incidents. The thing about automotive collisions is as much as they're predictable, they're all unique too. So um from an insurance perspective I should say. Um there's now, the, with the metrics on lost data and what happens in automotive collisions, and I think this global insurers really have a sense of, you know, here's what lost data looks like in this city, in this town, ta- like by postal code, you can understand what's going on in both the US and Canada and other parts of the world. There, There's predictive analytics that allow them to set the rates, that allow them to understand where to price it. And then to the extent you have governments involved in that process. So, you know. You, The Canadian insurers, or at least in the province of Ontario, you have to post what your rate is going to be and your your rate is then, you know, public and you have to stick within that rate and the government requires you to do that. So, you know, as new mechanisms for, for driving are introduced, all of this stuff is going to be challenged and questioned and, you know, reform is inevitable
0: of some kind. I, yeah, it has to happen. I mean... It's not like, te- I mean, hey, you know what, actually, I was about to say, it's not like Tesla's going away. I don't see Tesla going away anytime soon, but maybe their business model dramatically changes. And it's not about, you know, me going and buying a Tesla tomorrow. It's about me owning a Tesla with six other people and I don't ever drive it because that's the way that we can all own it together and know that each of us are equally responsible for everything that happens sure. to the vehicle.
1: Or, te- or Tesla owns the car and you use it when you want to.
0: Yes, Right. which is
1: what you're seeing i mean the whole car to go model is really gm's answer to urbanization so you absolutely know, you, you saw somebody at gm recognized that you know young people living downtown don't don't a have the have the means to necessarily afford a car certainly in urban centers like toronto or in mm-hmm. new york mm-hmm. or other you know major metropolitan cities and um the, the usage of that car was limited to simply like I needed to get groceries or I needed to pick somebody up from somewhere so you know the car to go model is GM's response which you know is interesting so if these manufacturers take the business model that is we're going to own all the vehicles and we're just going to make them really accessible and so if the car to go parked on the streets in fact autonomous you know wh- what does that what does that do does it make it cheaper to use does that limit the liabilities does that what happens Mm -hmm. the whole model of car ownership i think is in question um and that really the insurance that's that follows that or that surrounds that is going to be i think going to be dictated based on the models that these you know innovative manufacturers put out there ultimately everybody needs to be thinking about where's the liability am i responsible and that's why you can't get on the road in certainly in canada today without evidence of liability insurance because what happens if you harm somebody else or damage somebody else's property. So mm-hmm. that that question will never go away. It's a matter of who then bears the
0: responsibility of having to address it. Right. Yeah, I mean it's it is a really interesting time right now in terms of just mobility in general and I think we're at um and you know there are a lot of people I'm sure that'll debate this as as much as they will a lot of the things that we talk about here today but um We're at a point right now where I think something really interesting is going to happen. And it may not be, you know, it's not tomorrow, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years. We're going to see some really interesting changes. And when that comes to both the idea of autonomous driving and kind of co-sharing cars, car ownership, co-sharing autonomous cars, or just being a part of an organization or buying into a subscription-based model, like, you know, maybe that's what Uber evolves into is that. It's like a timeshare and you get a car when you need a car. And I understand that, too, because most of the time when we see this everywhere is that, you know, in the ownership of your car, actually using it accounts for, you know, 10, 20 percent of the time that you actually own the car. So there's a lot of time that you just, it's just sitting. There's nothing happening with it. So I understand the evolution towards this. I don't like it. As a driver and someone who loves cars and someone who loves driving cars on a regular basis the freedom that it gives me to have access to that at the drop of a dime access might be granted in in an easy way for me in the future as well but I think that it's taking us in a very exciting way and so with that I did see a very interesting article um, just recently so this was the insurance I don't normally read these but I did That's as okay. research most, in advance Most people don't read their policies either <laughs> so. no so this was um, this was uh, you know kind of uh, unknown territory to me and so I did a bit of research in advance of this and just looking at so this is the Insurance Information Institute so they put out a short article back in July on self-driving cars um, and in it, they cited Rand, so America's—it's uh, like an American nonprofit global policy think tank. Uh, I believe smarter people. Than yeah, you. they've got some smart people, and I believe that they both both advise on some uh, Air Force and defense uh, contracts as well. So take it with a grain of salt. They had suggested uh, that in terms of liability when it came to autonomous driving, that this was a uh, no-fault auto insurance system. And so bear with me because when i started reading this i was like hang on wait a minute so this is this sounds kind of crazy to me and the reference that they had used was something akin to the national childhood vaccine injury act and this is back in like i think the uh, late 80s so immediately it's got my attention like hang on wait a minute what are we talking about here and so the national childhood vaccine injury act was put in place to avoid vaccines becoming scarce due to claims against their manufacturers so uh and the way i started understanding it more and more as i I read into it it was like if one in a hundred people
1: if i'm going to get sued every time someone uses my product (laughs) that's intended to help them then and and i have to defend against those suits well then there's no point in me making the
0: product that's exactly it it was exactly it i mean you know yeah one person um and it's not to say that that one person is in the wrong but that one person had an adverse reaction to a vaccine and became, however, it was v- terribly ill, died. They were, you know, injured beyond, you know, r- uh, repair, if you can do that with a human. Um, and, <laughs> um, and because of those reactions, that manufacturer would, you know, all the claims against them would basically render them um, unable to continue producing the vaccine. And for those other 99 people that it cured or solved this problem for. They no longer have access to that and then of course what other manufacturer is going to wade into that territory if all of a sudden they know they are going to come up against the same odds so i think it's a bit of a uh i think it's a bit of an extreme comparison but at the same point it's kind of interesting to think that these organizations are even suggesting that something like that could happen where no fault insurance all of a sudden becomes the norm in automotive and it's like well you know, we've eliminated 99.9% of all the automotive accidents and incidents of accidents in the world because of our technology. And yes, a few people died. But those few people died so that everybody else could live. And if that then becomes the model for insurance, it's like, how are these, um, you know, sorry, what happens to these organizations that are then now the ones that are producing these vehicles and producing this software? They become all-powerful yeah potentially i mean
1: I, we go a little bit out of my circle of competence down this path but i think you know you know without representing my own firm's views and my own personal opinion is you know the innovation's important protecting people's um uh, property and and their physical safety is important um and balancing those two is tricky so we've seen in the past alternative risk transfer mechanisms that exist We've seen the government involve itself, um, where it thinks it's necessary or, or when it should, uh, which is often debated. But when you look at the insurance of these autonomous vehicles, I don't think it'll be such a scenario that, you know, the claims against the manufacturer are going to prevent them and and destroy the incentives for, um, for manufacturing. Even if you look at how your own policy works now, if you're, in an, if you're in an auto incident, you're paying your deductible if there's damage to your car. Mm-hmm. So so is the other party. Mm-hmm. The people that organize it in the background is the insurance company so that you, know, you pay your deductible, your car's repaired, uh, it goes onto the road. We note the file that you have, a, you have had an incident. Same on the counterparty. And the insurance companies talk to each other to determine what portion of this bill am I really paying Uh, Mm -hmm. am I paying my clients and the counterparty or am I just paying my own? And for every incident, there's two insurers who are involved and they, you know, they win one, they lose one, they win one, they lose one. So it balances out and the market. The insurance marketplace has a way of addressing that. I think it's too, I think we're way too early to tell. Um, again, it comes down to this scenario where we're going to have human operators for a long time. So for those appreciators out there, and those that love driving and um, prefer driving older vo- older models, and, yeah. and you know, like want to invest and spend their time in doing that, mm-hmm. I don't think that's going away anytime soon. I agree. All. So the big the big issue is how do we balance the two? And I think the manu- the autonomous manufacturers are going to have to spend some time thinking about how are we coexisting under the current laws because I don't think that the current laws need to be readjusted just because there's a new product. I think. That new product needs to understand how it's going to operate within the current universe, right? Right. Now, that being said, you know, when Uber arrived, where we write to question, you know, how, like, if this driver's in an accident, what happens to me?
0: And very few questioned that in the first place. No.
1: We all used it, and we're like, wait a minute, maybe we should think about this. Same with Airbnb, and I think there's there's ambiguity around what's really happening in the sharing economy. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think the belief is, and I'm not personally familiar with the, um, uh, the Uber insurance program as an example, but we would hope that they carry very significant limits of liability that would drop down and support the drivers and more importantly i think support the passengers if they were to be harmed so then you look at what are the individual drivers actually doing for their policies and we heard a whole lot about you know hey i'm using my car and you know we started asking at our firm you know are you driving passengers because that's changing your vehicle from a you know from a a family vehicle and driven for you know for pleasure or personal purposes as opposed to a commercial vehicle. Well, there's a whole higher rate of commercial incidents. And if you look at taxi or limo insurance, certainly in the city of Toronto, it's extortionately high because the incidents are there to of back course. it up. Yeah, right? So course. the incidents you're are on the rates road. and you're on the road that right, much you're on more the and you're, more. you're driving with speed and you're, mm-hmm. you're going, you know, you're going from West end to East end, you're in traffic, you're in. So the likelihood of event is higher and that's proven in the actual loss data. So when you, when you start to look at, you know, what, what's going to happen to the individual policy. It all comes back to this. We don't know who's going to own the car, where the liability is going to end up. And I, I, I wish that I had a stronger answer for you than that, <laughs> but the, even the insurance companies don't know. If we got on the phone tomorrow and we said, you know, let's we put together a panel of insurers and Canadian automotive insurers for personal vehicles. And you said, you know, okay, Chubb, what would you do? AIG, what would you do? Aviva, what would you do? Uh, Royal and Sun Alliance, what would you do? Um, they're each going to have a different approach. There might be some common themes in there, but how they address it in their policy is going to be unique. How they want to address claims is going to be unique, and they're all going to be asking, "Well, do I have any exposure to the manufacturer? What about the auto parts going into that?" Mm-hmm. So, the software maker, the chip board, like it, it used to be—you know, ball bearings, pistons, and steel and steel tubing, and you know the components of a vehicle today. Well, if the components of the vehicle tomorrow are chipboard and and microprocessors and you know your traditional your your traditional materials are not going to be utilized, well then there's a whole other set of exposures
0: to the supply chain into the automotive industry right. which may shift. Right, I can see how this turns from uh, the manufacturer pointing back to their suppliers at this point. Totally. So, sorry, guys. You know the, you know what the, that processor that we were using. It failed under under yeah, extreme low
1: temperatures. Yeah, we're going to sue you for it. And those yeah. things, I, again, those are that's why the R&D on these things I think is going to take a long time. The other interesting piece is, because I don't want to get negative about it and I don't think the uncertainty should scare the innovator, right? And I think that's what's brilliant about some of these, these innovators is when you look at the use of what autonomous vehicles could do in haulage, for example, like here's the question. Are you more comfortable knowing that you know, Bill Smith, the 25 year veteran road warrior, who's been hauling methanol across Canada in good weather, bad weather, nighttime, daytime, long hauls, short hauls. Are you more comfortable with him behind the wheel with methanol in front of you? Or are you more comfortable with the software uh, in front of you? And then if you're the owner operator of the methanol business, you're the buyer, you're the supplier, you're shipping it. Like are you more comfortable having Bill driving or do you want the machine to drive? That's a really good point. And so I think, you know, as we look at commercial applications of this, the efficiency, the cost efficiency that autonomous vehicles should be able to provide to our economy, I think are really interesting. The fact that the vehicles can drive all night and you're not having human error issues and that, you know, there's going to be a whole lot of improvement to, you know, shipping and um, speed and delivery times provided traffic is also improved, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. which is another element of that. can course, that traffic. is with these autonomous vehicles but again like where in the spectrum of time are we in actually delivering that people are still going to be driving their cars in 50 years i'm sorry that's i think just a fact particularly the appreciators right Mm -hmm. we're gonna gonna be on the road i have i have
0: have a a very interesting speculation on that so i
1: when you when you contemplate all those things i think we're still a ways away from understanding what's happening i will tell you that the industry is is actively trying the insurance industry is actively trying to understand from the manufacturers what are you intending, what, what is the business model you intend to operate on, help us understand it. And as more disruptors show up, you know, the insurance industry, albeit, you know, traditionally slow moving and, and large, has reacted appropriately. Viva came out with a really interesting solution to the ride sharing uh, and relatively quickly. So their ability to respond to the innovation, I think, exists and there's a willingness to do it. It's just
0: help us figure out that question. Who owns it and where's the liability going to fall? <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I like it. I think that, you know, this is a topic we could go on for ages and ages and ages on. Um, and it's one that I don't, like I said, we're, we are moving in that direction. It's unavoidable. And I'm really excited and interested to see where it goes. I mean, every manufacturer is starting to dabble in it. Um, we're going to see more and more um, as the, you know, the crash avoidance systems and, you um, you know, accident mitigation systems are put in place because every manufacturer has them right now. Um, and sure. a lot of them are very, um, I guess, reminiscent of the early days of Tesla when they introduced this autopilot system. And they're, you know, th- these are these are the technologies that are allowing people to avoid accidents in the first place. So it's going to be there. We're definitely going in that direction. Yeah, and, and
1: I would only add to that, Trev, the, to the extent that the insurance companies can be brought in to be part of that conversation, I think we'll only improve the manufacturer's outcome because you know the engineering the analytics the data the reasons for incident you know if you were to go to an insurance company and say over the last 55 years in Canada where are the incidents taking place what's the common trend what are the most common types of incidents what are the accidents that we really need to be avoiding collaboration from a consortium of insurers in combination with the manufacturers trying to address the most commonly Um, or the most common incidents might be a really helpful path forward.
0: Well, yeah, you would think so. You'd think that the information... If they're not already doing it, right? Yeah, and 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 they they should be. They should be if they aren't already, because you would think that all of the data and the information that's been logged over all of these years of us driving would be incredibly useful for any kind of mapping um, and kind of just um, awareness systems in the cars to know that you're heading into a a very highly... um, I guess, what's the right word? You're heading into a a dangerous zone where accidents are very, uh, are very prominent, even during particular hours. And it adjusts your driving as a result of that. um, And then then mapping, you know,
1: if you, if you could go get an image and everyone's, hopefully not everybody, but if you've been in an accident or in a collision, you, you typically have to identify in visually with the, you know, with the police reporting, what does the accident look like? So, if you had a hundred years of all the incidents from several insurance companies, and you could, from a big data perspective, identify where the most common, the most severe, um, where are they taking place? What do they look like? Well, then your algorithm to build protections, I think, gets that much, that much smarter and that much stronger. If and again, I say that it may already be well on its way, right, and I would yeah. certainly hope that if the manufacturing community isn't talking to the insurance community and vice
0: versa we i would certainly be a proponent of of doing that yeah got it makes so much sense you'd even think that even on a micro scale in the moment uh that driving through particular environments that are prone to accidents from let's call it from the passenger side you know as you're driving through the car is even more aware of what might be coming from that side versus other potential areas of danger around the car um, and to even give you that split second, who knows? Who knows what would happen? What lives would or wouldn't be saved?
1: And Trev, I would imagine it to be an iterative process. So of course, we're gonna, yeah. you know, just like we see in technology, we're going to see, you know, version 1.0 and then <laughs> we're going to see version one point five, and we it's going to yeah. be based on customer feedback, and it's going to be based on, you know, data collection and data data analytics. Yeah,
0: it's it is. I mean, for me. I know that I will always, and for however long I can hold on to it, be behind the wheel operating it myself. And that's not to say that I don't think that, um, that, this, that it it's not like I wouldn't trust the systems because I certainly do. And even today I do in my car, um, in one of our cars here is that I trust their system. I mean, with a lot, especially with my family in the car. And so that to me is, um, it's a piece of it's a it's a peace of mind. It's comfort. Um, it helps me even just with um, you know generally being less fatigued while I'm driving. Um, and if that's going to be the case moving forward, I'm going to feel a lot more comfortable in a car. It's not going to stop me from wanting to be passionate about driving my own car and getting out. And to be honest, I foresee a future where most people, which I'd be happy with, most of the other drivers on the road that are out there driving an appliance just to get from A to B have no interest or enjoyment in the act of driving. They don't feel passionate about it. They really don't get anything out of it other than it's a hassle for me to have to go from A to B. And so if that continues to be the case, I see more autonomy, more people on the road behind the wheel, but not necessarily driving themselves. And moving on, for me at least, I see... I see driving and the act of driving becoming more like going and playing around a round of golf. It's going to get to that point where, sure. you know, and I know there already are these driving clubs and these country clubs that allow you to go and do that. But realistically, I think the days of driving a, a you know, a gasoline powered uh, internal combustion engine vehicle, and being able to go and enjoy it is only going to be done on racetrack surfaces well racetrack surfaces or country club like surfaces in private areas that are completely controlled and and that's going to be it i you know what, that's not the worst thing but I, you know if that were the way that it went i would definitely miss being able to get out and actually drive myself Sure,
1: it's really interesting Trev. i mean if you think about what the automotive or the industrial revolution revolution um and the creation of the auto manufacturer did to the economy, it did for jobs, it did for lifestyle, it did, it changed everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, It turning over and changing again, I think will just yield opportunity. So for every, for every buff out there that likes their, you know, their old school experience, Mm -hmm. there's going to be a new school experience that, you know, might be as exhilarating. And as the
0: generations change, I think it's just inevitable, right? It's true. It's true. Okay. So let's move on to, it's our last topic, and this is kind of more along the lines of what some of the listeners I know are probably really wondering. And uh, you can uh, you can go as deep or you can stay as light as you want on this because I understand that you know based on your um, based on 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 your uh, your role in the organization there are certain things you can and can't say. So please feel free to you know to filter yourself in this environment. So a lot of our listeners have cars that. Um, don't necessarily stay in their stock form after we've bought them. Uh, and we do, mods. Things, <laughs> we do things to modify cars. Um, in a lot of cases, I think I could argue that I made my car safer by modifying certain components of it to allow me for both more control and, you know, acceleration or the potential for better acceleration on a highway in an instance where maybe I needed to get in front of a car to get on the highway and accelerate faster than I normally would. That's all I ever use it for, I swear. And so with that, if someone were to do those types of things to their car, what are the best ways to go about it? I mean, is it full transparency? Is it, um, yeah, it is hundred percent. Yeah.
1: Just tell us, right. Um, And if your insurer can't handle that, there's somebody out there that can. can. So there's all, you know, the, the part of it is having the right advocate. So this is, you know, without plugging our firm, I think it's yeah. it's it's talking, you know, if you're in if you if you're afraid to tell your insurance company what you're doing, that's not the right relationship. <laughs> uh unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately that, that I mean the industry hasn't done a whole lot to prevent that scenario because I course. think a lot of people would rather just well, if I tell them that it's going to cost me more and then I'm going to have a bigger issue and yeah. that's not necessarily the case. We would suggest that if you have made modifications to your car talk about it with your insurance partner um and if they if the response you get is not helpful or useful to you well then you know my immediate suggestion would be you can find a different partner to help you solve that problem and that's
0: what we do i like that well i mean the fact that there's somebody out there willing and open to be able to have that conversation amazing for sure there it's to me, it's, you know, you're making an investment and it's like, you know, I, I, it's probably different when it comes to the actual nuts and bolts of it. But, you know, if I'm doing something different to my home and it's either adding or removing value reg- regardless of that, but for the, my particular use case, it makes sense for me in my life. That's what I want. I want a partner who's going to look at that and be a partner in that exactly at, to that term is it I want somebody there that's going to help me with that.
1: Yeah. You, I mean, if they say no, then, you know, we, we can find
0: alternatives. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense um hang on two we're gonna have a little quick little interruption but um what i wanted to ask was the last question and i swear this is the last question it's good timing for it the black box what are your thoughts on the black box and i mean in terms of i guess it's variable insurance based on your on the driver right
1: yeah. So it's like, if you think about the black box in terms of like the, the flight recorder. Yeah. Um, you know, being able to retroactively understand what happened in an accident is going to be helpful in determining totally and liabil- helpful in potentially determining liability yeah. to the extent that there's coordinates and there's micro measurements in that box mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with respect to telemetrics, which is, Hey, we want to understand your, uh, we want to understand your driving habits. I think, you know, as we touched on earlier, Trev, the, the, Telemetrics are helping the insurers make evaluations about underwriting you. For those of you that are really good drivers, the telemetrics will probably help you. Mm-hmm. For those of you that are not and who are viewed as reckless or viewed as dangerous or you know those measurements, um, it's probably not going to help you. But this I think comes back to let's have a discussion about it. So if the nature of your vehicle is is for personal use and commuting, great. Mm-hmm you know there shouldn't be any issues and and exploring telemetrics to improve your cost of insurance should help you but if if you know that your driving habits involve acceleration involve you know certain maneuvering and uh, driving style spirited driving yeah what i mean the big interest the big question that i have is is it going to become mandatory and if it becomes that was man- what i was about to ask right yeah. so if it becomes mandatory it's a it's an interesting thing but i still think there's room for the exception in the conversation which is where you know we look at it and say if you're going to take your car to a track you know how does that impact the telemetrics in your vehicle so if you know of every th- if every third week you know they see that you're driving your car extremely quickly yeah, and, tu- and you've and, done 180 and turn 200 kilometers an hour yeah. then right. there's then there's you know there's going to be some questions but i think it's again it comes back to having the ability to have a conversation if you're if your insurance is dictated to you from a machine your ability to have a conversation is trickier mm-hmm. so to the extent that you can have a conversation with people to say this is how i use my car should i be installing this tool do you think it's going to help me is going to be a unique answer for for a every, lot of people for every, every yeah. driver right T- take us through it um I highly doubt that it'll become mandatory. I think what it's doing is that it's allowing certain insurance companies to get better information, and the belief is that bigger, bigger data, better information is going to help improve their underwriting capabilities overall. So, right. XYZ company is, you know, asking for telemetrics to be installed so that they can measure and find data, so that in the long term they can eventually provide you with more accurate pricing, and accurate pricing is code for.
0: Give you relief if the, if you're if you've got a good driving record and, <laughs> and potentially penalize you if you're if you're yeah. reckless i would like i said earlier Which they should i wish i could be a whistleblower on those that i feel like should have it when i'm out driving on a regular basis but i know that's not the case um i think that's a really good place for us to uh to cut um i i, I can't tell you how much i appreciate you coming in jeff that was awesome um uh, we started off at, with it at the beginning but um, maybe you can just give a quick plug to your firm because I think it's probably important that a, a few people you know if it makes the if it makes sense and it's the right case and the right time to be able to talk to somebody a partner probably makes sense for you um, you are with yeah so thanks Trev we're with so we're Jones Brown um, we're found on the internet
1: at www.jonesbrown.com. and I think we would encourage you to reach out to anybody in our private client. A business to talk about your personal insurance needs and if you own or operate businesses that involve vehicles and you have questions and you know we're more than happy to help you
0: answer some of the questions that you have. It's awesome. So in other words, Jeff's your guy when it comes to cars, go and talk to him. You can trust him. You don't have to hide anything. It's awesome. Um, So that has been episode 20 of the bucket seat podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure you rate and subscribe. I've got a couple of other interesting episodes coming up. I hope that's a usual thing you're getting, uh, you're getting into the, into the mix with and, um, if you can follow us on Instagram, uh, I don't have a Facebook page. I'm not going to be doing that anytime soon. But enjoy everything that's coming up. If you have any questions, you can get me at uh, thebucketseat.ca. Email me. Let me know any suggestions or requests for future episodes. I'd be happy to. Uh, I'd be happy to to humor those. So uh, thanks again for listening, guys. And um, I'll be back hopefully next week with episode 21. Take care.